Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Glad you're here. Glad you're with us uh, live stream as well. Um, it's time of our service where we now open the Word of God. We have sung it, the Word. We have pr- prayed the Word. We've read the Word. Now it's time to preach the Word. And these are God's words. And we want to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our ongoing verse-by-verse study of this letter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on verses 9 and 10. Tell you what, while you are looking for 1 Peter 2, also look for Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, because we'll be flipping back and forth a couple times, and you can already have that in place. 1 Peter chapter 2, focus verses 9 and 10, and then Exodus 19 as well. Peter writing to the scattered Believers living in throughout Asia Minor writes these words. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Very important text to us as believers because it speaks of our identity. It speaks and tells us who we are, and it tells us what we're to be doing. Answers both those questions, who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Why does the church exist? What's what's its purpose? Why do you come? Why are you here? This is a great passage for us to consider this morning. I was, my attention was directed to a British commentator this week, Uh, Bentley, I believe is his last name. He wrote this, some people think the church is just here to provide a service when they want their baby christened or daughter married or father buried. Some people think the church is here so children, old ladies, and effeminate men have a place to go on a Sunday or a weekday afternoon. Interesting. Some people think it's merely here to give support when sudden tragedy hits the locality. Some of these things have some truth in them, but they are not the main reason why the church has been established. Paul addresses God's people with the aim of reminding them who they are and telling them what they should be doing, end of quote. And that's the point of this passage, who we are and what we are to be doing. We are the privileged people of God. That is what this section has been about. We are the privileged people of God, and we have a special purpose. The key, uh, if you have a King James Version, the word peculiar is actually used in there. We are a peculiar people. It's an old English word, meaning that we are uniquely possessed and owned by God and given a special purpose. And Peter is writing to these believers to remind them of that in the midst of all the persecution that they are facing. And to remind them that even though they are being persecuted, they are to be faithful ambassadors, uh, proclaiming the excellencies of God. Who we are, we start with that in verse 9. You see the but you, that's a contrast from the previous verses. He's just gotten through talking about unbelievers in verse 8. He's talking about those who stumbled over the cornerstone, those who disbelieved and were disobedient to the word. You see that in verse 8. They met their doom, their, their appointed doom, the doom they will face because of their rejection of Christ. 
And he's now talking to believers. He shifts now to speaking to those who believed the gospel, those from whom who put their faith in Christ and who looked to Christ as the stone, the cornerstone, the stone that was rejected. They have believed in it and accepted it and put their faith in it. The stone upon which the church is built and we as living stones are being added to the building of that church as we talked about last week. He says, you who believe, we talked, said this last time, but you were dug out of the pit and you were quarried and you were made into a living stone uh, in union with the living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he uses a list here of Old Testament terms that, and I want to emphasize this, these are Old Testament terms that Peter is using to describe the church or to talk about the church that were used in the Old Testament to describe the nation Israel. And this will be a very important distinction to make this morning. So stay with me on this. But what Peter is saying here, he's using the very same words when he says things like you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They're in bold print in your Bible most likely, or all caps. They're being quoted from the Old Testament. But he's using these to explain our position in Christ as well. First, he says, you're a chosen race. When you think of a race, you're thinking of a group of people who are united together by a common heritage. That's a race. Not talking about skin color, but about Christians who have been born again in this context. Um, We have a common ancestor. Uh, Our God is our father. That's the point. Um, We all come from the same father. We're all this, we, we are a mixture of people who've been brought together by God, chosen by God, and brought us together as one people. One pastor said it this way, the gospel has created a new race, one race made up of people from every tongue, tribe, social and economic standard. God has chose the unalike and made them into one new family. How else can you explain the church? How else can you explain all these unalikes coming together to make up the family of God? Or this race this chosen race. God had to do this work. We're a chosen race, meaning God chose us. He selected us. Um, We were never part of this family. We were not part of this family, and he brought us into this family. That's God's work. He adopted us as sons and daughters, brought us into this family. We know that he refer, is referring to Israel uh, first in this. We've seen this in the Old Testament. He says this about Israel uh, in Isaiah 43. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 43, my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me. He's saying that about us as well. We've been chosen. We're a chosen race. We've talked about the doctrine of election, so I'm not going to go into that in depth this morning. We talked about it earlier in 1 Peter. Notice in 1 Peter 1.1, he's talking to the Peter, writing in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen. And then he goes into according to the foreknowledge of God in verse 2. He addressed the issue there. In in chapter 2, verse 4, he calls Christ the choice one. You see that in verse 4. 
in, in chapter five of 1 Peter, if you won't turn over there, 1 Peter chapter five. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. You see that word of election, that word of being chosen or selected by God. That's what the word means. And go to 2 Peter, just flip over uh, the next page to chapter one, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And so now we're in verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and he's just adding to the doctrine of election once again. We are a chosen race. God chose us. He selected us. Some people say it's not fair that God should choose some and not others. But the real question is, is it fair that God would choose anybody? Is that fair? Because no one deserves God's mercy. Romans, excuse me, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8 both say our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. He foreknew you. He foreloved you. He set his love on you before you were ever born. If you're a Christian, that is true of you. You are part of this family, this chosen race of God. Hold your hand there in 1 Peter and Exodus 19 and look at Ephesians 1 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, probably the best definition in the New Testament on the doctrine of election. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And I'm not saying this is an easy doctrine to get your mind around. I am not saying it's an easy doctrine to swallow. It's a tough one. But this is our God who is sovereign in these things. And these verses are all over the Bible. Ephesians 1 verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Not our free will. It doesn't say our free will. It's the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So Peter starts out by saying, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. And it's something that he said of Israel, and it's something he says of us now. Look at the second thing it says in verse 9. We're a royal priesthood. We pointed this out last week. Uh, in the Old Testament, they had priests. It was the priest who had access to God, into the holy place, and then the high priest into the holy of holies. It was the priest who would perform all the sacrifices. The people did not do that. The people had to stay and stand back. The priests were the only ones who had that kind of access and could perform those kinds of sacrifices. But Peter is saying, you're, like we said last week, you're a, royal, you're, you're a priest, you're a royal priesthood. All of us are priests. You're a believer priest. It's a doctrine of the priesthood of believers. The church today should not be set up with priests who serve as intermediaries between the people and God. You do not need a priest to hand you communion. You do not need a priest to confess your sins to. We don't need a priest to stand between us and God because we have access to God ourselves because we are believer 
priests. You have pastors and elders and deacons and, and servant leaders. You, you hear the word of God preached to you. They oversee things in the church, but they're not mediators. They are not mediators between you and God. That's the important distinction to make here. And the reason is because we all have the same mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. It's like Christ leveled the playing field. I don't need somebody from the tribe of Levi or the line of Aaron. I don't need anyone to stand between me and God. I have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is my high priest, who is the one through whom I go. And he says, he goes on to say that, um, well, you think about it this way. We're all on the same playing field. We're all level. Just because I'm standing here behind a pulpit does not make me any better. Uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual sacrifice that we all have. I, I exercise a gift. You exercise your gifts. We're all doing the same thing to build up the body of Christ. He says a royal priesthood. And I think royal in the sense that we are part of the king. We're united to the king. We're united to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the king. In the line of Mechelzeldeck, he is the king and uh, the priest king. And uh, it's part of our privilege to be united to Christ and therefore also when he reigns, we too shall reign. Look at that Exodus 19 passage I told you about. Exodus 19, verse 6. This was spoken to Israel in Exodus 19. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and, excuse me, a kingdom of priests. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Revelation 1.6, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 1.6 says it this way, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to God and Father, the Lord Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, worthy are you to take the book and open it, he says, talking, speaking of Christ, for you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And so we all have access because of Christ. In our union with Christ, we will reign one day with Christ says they will reign upon the earth, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 5 says. And so, taking the same language that was spoken to the nation Israel, Peter applies these two things, these first two, to us as believers in the church. And then he has another one, holy nation. You see that in verse 9, a holy nation. This is a group of people, that's what the word holy means, who have been set apart from the rest of the world. Uh, and God makes a distinction between us and the rest of the world. And we're to be different. That's what holy means, to come out from their midst and be different. In Exodus 19, turn back there for a moment. You see it to the nation Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We're to be different from the world. We are called out from the world and we're to be different. Let us cleanse ourselves, Paul says, from all defilement of flesh 
and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. We're to be a different people. We're to look different. We're to think differently. We're to behave differently. I was reading something by Steve Davey, and I thought it was very interesting. Uh, We are to be separated unto God and to be different from the nations around us. The laws and customs, he says, and interests of this nation, the church, are often at odds with the culture and customs and interests of the nation around us. We know this. God expected it that it would be that way. The early Christians to whom Peter is writing would have openly violated many of the cultural norms of their generation. They viewed marriage differently, the role of parenting differently. Humility was valued, unlike the culture who viewed it as a weakness. Many of the early believers reading this letter from Peter would have disobeyed one of the 12 tables of Roman law when it decreed, and I quote, deformed infants shall be killed. You kill a deformed baby. In other words, in order to keep the Roman bloodline as superior as possible, deformed infants weren't given a chance to live. Even Seneca, the brilliant tutor of several Caesars who lived during the time of the apostles, defended the killing of infants by writing, we drown children who at birth are weak and abnormal. This has been true around the world and it's still true today. The value of human life is raised by the presence of the gospel, Davy goes on to say, and in its absence, human life becomes nearly worthless in the eyes of the world. I found it interesting to discover in my study, he says, in the latter part of the second century, a church leader named Clement wrote that the Roman government and its citizens were known for saving and protecting young birds and other animals while lacking any moral regard about the abandoning or aborting of their own children. That sounds just like today. Plato argued that it should be the right of the state to force a woman to have an abortion. Sounds like Plato and Planned Parenthood would be close friends. Aristotle argued the same thing, which effectively created an industry around abortion. These are, these are centuries ago, same battles. The early Christians were at odds with the devaluing of human life and the elevating of the animal life, just as many countries are today. In America, it is a violation of the law to knowingly crush the egg of a pre-born eaglet, but you can certainly crush the pre-born human being. Alvin Schmidt cataloged in his book, How Christianity Cannot Change the World, published an article from 319 AD, three, excuse me, 379 AD, church leaders were publicly condemning the practice of selling aborted babies to the manufacturers of beauty cream. It sounds like today. <laughs> Just sounds like today. A holy nation, separate, does not hold to these values. To be a holy nation is to come out from their midst and to not touch what is unclean. It's to talk differently, it's to sound differently, it's to act differently. Israel was called to that and the church is called to that. And we go right against the stream every time, but that is our calling. And then fourthly, we are people for God's own possession. You see that in verse 9. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 9. A people for God's own possession. Listen, God owns us. We have been bought with a price. He redeemed us. That's what redemption is. You pay a price for something. He paid price. He purchased us with the blood of his son. We are not our own. We belong to him. That is what he means by this. As far as it goes with the church. 
Listen, you are determined valuable by, uh, let me put it this way, you determine the value of something by who owns you. This is how this verse is talking about it. For example, I read a story about someone who took their dent ping pong ball and was able to sell it on eBay for thousands of dollars. A dent, have you seen a dent ping pong ball? He took that, thought I'd try this out, puts it on eBay and sells it for thousands of dollars. And the owner of that ping pong ball was so excited to have it. And you know the reason why? Because that ping pong ball belonged to a celebrity. Follow me? Follow the logic here? No, that's not logical. That's terrible. But the point is, the point is, you and I are nothing. But it's because of who we belong to. We are God's own possession. We're precious to him. We belong to him. It's because of who we belong to that we have value and worth. It's not about your self-worth. It's about the worth you have because you are in Christ and you belong to God. It's the worth that he gives to you, not the worth that you have in yourself. Once again, I take you to Exodus chapter 19, just so you'll see it there. I have a reason for this, having you go back and look at that. Exodus 19, verse 5, the previous verse to 6, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. This is what God said to Israel. Peter is taking these same words and is and describing our describing them to the ascribing, ascribing them to the church. First Peter, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter six. Back to thinking about the church now. In First Corinthians chapter six, verse nineteen, your 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 body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things are repeated over and over again. This is our identity. This is our identity. This is who we are. Listen, we can easily forget this. We can easily um, forget where we came from. And that's why he includes, go down to verse 10. That's... um, He's reminding us we have not always been a holy nation, God's chosen family, chosen race. We've not always been uh, God's own possession. We've not always been uh, a royal priesthood. We've not always been those things. He reminds us of that in verse 10. For you were not once a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's just a reminder that though this is true of you now, verse 9, this was not always your situation. There was a past. Don't ever forget what you came from. He says you were Gentiles in the flesh, Ephesians 2 says. He says you were separated from the things of God. Remember that you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from the things of God, Ephesians 2 says. You had no hope in this world, Ephesians 2 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says you used to all be you used to be all alone out there, but now you're in God's family. It's good to remember these things. Um, 
He says, you were still in the world, but you did not display his mercy and grace in your lives. But now you have received it. He says that in verse 10. You receive mercy and you receive grace. And you are by nature an object of God's wrath. And you had nothing to look forward to except God's judgment because of sin. And instead of giving us what what we all deserve, God poured out his wrath for our sins on Christ. That's what he did for you. He showed mercy to you. He, instead of judging you, he, Christ took your, judgment in your, took your judgment in your place. He had mercy on us. Um, mercy means not getting what you deserve. First one, chapter one, verse three, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. So, He's quoting from the book of Hosea here, Old Testament book of Hosea. See if you can find Hosea for a moment. Don't lose Exodus, and don't lose 1 Peter, but find Hosea. Toward the end of the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, give you a hint, it's after Daniel and it's before Malachi. (laughs) Hosea chapter two. My point here is 1 Peter 2.10 is a quotation from, or parts of it are a quotation from Hosea, or a reference to what God is saying in the book of Hosea, also a book written to God's people, the Jews. Hosea was a prophet of God, he was God's spokesman. And God told Hosea, to marry a prostitute named Gomer. That had to be a request and a half, but that that marriage was to serve as a model or an illustration of God's marriage to Israel because Israel was continually prostituting herself as a nation to other gods and turning their back on God. And his marriage was gonna be a picture of God's relationship to Israel. So that's what Hosea is all about. He had three children. We're gonna take a look at two of those children here for a moment. And I want you to see their names because names meant something in the Old Testament. So then she, verse six of Hosea chapter one. Did I say chapter two? I meant Hosea chapter one. Sorry, Hosea chapter one. Hosea chapter one, verse six. Talking about Gomer, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. They pursued other gods and he says, hey, I, would, I will no longer have compassion on them that I would ever forgive them. Then go to verse, seven, to verse eight and has another child. And when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Luami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. See that? That's strong words to say to the nation Israel, you are not, I will no longer have compassion on you through these children, their names mean these things. I will no longer have compassion on you and I am not your God. Because of their rebellion, strong warning. But then notice what happens in verse 23 of chapter 2, where God shows mercy. 
specifically to, to Judah in verse 23 of chapter 2. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had no who have not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who were not my people, I just said this about Israel, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And so you have a prophecy here of the reconciliation that will happen between God and Israel. Uh, he will not permanently send them away because there is, they will repent, he says. I believe that's what's in mind in, in verse 10, what Peter had in mind, verse 10, that mercy, that God will uh, show mercy. And like Israel, we've been shown mercy. We've been shown mercy by God. And God's forgiven us for our spiritual adultery, and God's forgiven us for our spiritual waywardness, and just like he forgave and will forgive Israel one day. So Moses, um, in Deuteronomy 7, I'm not going to have you turn to all of these, but in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he once again just affirms that the Jews are his people. They are his own possession. You see some of the same language used there. And um, he uses all these Old Testament, he's in the Old Testament talking to Israel the very same way and very similar to the way he's talking, Peter is talking to the church here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And here's the question that I want to take the next few moments to sort of address. Why would Peter take all of these words and phrases that solely apply to the nation Israel in the Old Testament and use them to describe the New Testament church? And this is an important theological question to ask and to address. I look at these, I look at these verses in 1 Peter, I say, well, those are verses that God specifically said to the Jews. Why would God use those same verses to speak to the church? Uh, he is essentially saying that those of us who make up the church in this generation enjoy the privileged position that was reserved for Israel. He's, that's essentially what he's saying. What was said about Israel is true of the church, he's saying. You're enjoying that privileged position now. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The very same things that God said about Israel, he's saying these are true of you, the church. And why? Why would God say that? Why would God say that? So let's get the big picture here in mind, and then I'll try to answer that more specifically. But the big picture is this. God called out the nation of Israel, a people that had nothing special about them. He calls them out to be set apart. He wants them to be a witness to all the nations around them to show off his power that he is the one true God because they all worshiped a lot of gods, but they wanted, God wanted them to be, a, the Jews to be a light, to be his ambassador to all the nations. That was the reason he called out the Jews. And so he chose them to do that so that they would and he said to them, I will be your God and you will worship me. That's what he told the Jews to do. Isaiah 49.3, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. I'm giving you the position of being my ambassador to put me on display to the world. Here's what happens. They forfeited that 
They forfeited that position. They went into idolatry and immorality. Instead of being an influence to the nations, they were influenced by the nations. Instead of going and telling people not to worship other gods, they go and worship those gods themselves. They even intermarry with the foreign women of those nations and they become just like the nations around them. And they blended in and they lost their distinction and then they lost their ability to be God's ambassador. That's what happened in the Old Testament with the nation Israel. And so here's what happened. God shelved Israel for a time and he found another group, the church, that he could entrust with this responsibility of being a witness for him in the world, of being ones who would proclaim the excellencies of God and put his glory on display to the world. He shelved Israel, I say, for a time. And we are the ones, that group of people, that he could entrust now with the responsibility of being the proclaimers of those excellencies. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus said this, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So here's what I'm trying to say this morning, folks. God has handed over Israel's ambassador role to the church and the church is to be and do what Israel was meant to be and do. Don't miss this though. I am not saying that the church is the new Israel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the church is an expansion of Israel. I'm not saying that. I believe they're very distinct entities. And though there are similarities and though there are parallels between the two, there are differences to keep them separate. I don't, you don't have all the same promises being given to the Jews and the commandments that were given to the Jews given to the church. Some things do overlap, yes. We are like Israel in a lot of ways, but we are not Israel. Right, we have to make that distinction. We may, I make that distinction because the opposite view of what I'm standing up here saying this morning is covenant theology, okay? And I know some of you hold to that, and that is fine. You can hold to that, and God bless you. We can be in the same church, and I'll try my best to convince you otherwise. But the point is, but the point is I know some of you come out of that, and that's fine. See, we are reformed. Grace Church is a reformed church in our theology, we hold to the doctrines of grace and we proclaim those truths boldly. We, are, we love those doctrines of the divine sovereignty of God and salvation and other, uh, other areas of Reformed theology. We love those doctrines. But the Reformed package, the Reformed package usually includes covenantalism. It, you, it, it usually includes uh, the belief that the church is, that, that Israel has been expanded now to be the church, that the church has replaced Israel. And I know that we attract people. We attract people who are of the reform persuasion. They come to our church and they like everything we say and then they, they say, but your theology, seems, your eschatology seems to be a little different. 
and that's understandable. I understand that. I totally understand that. And fortunately, this is not one of those issues that we break fellowship over. This is not one of those issues that um, uh, is going to keep you out of heaven if you're on the wrong side of it. It's none of that. This is a family disagreement, that's all, on the grid of how we look at Scripture. That's all this is. I believe for a season the church has replaced Israel, but I believe at some point Romans 11 tells us they will be grafted back in. Romans 11, 25 and following. I believe that God does have a future plan for the nation Israel. Therefore, we do not teach, we do not teach that Israel has completely been put away and forgotten and now it's just the church only. We don't hold to that view. So we're anomaly to, to other reformed churches <laughs> in that sense because our eschatology does not line up with most Reformed churches. And we're not alone. There's other Reformed churches that share our eschatology. I'm not saying we're unique in that sense. But I do get that from other pastors sometimes. They say, you're Reformed and you're all messed up on your eschatology. What's the deal? You know, and I, I get it. I get that. I understand that discussion. I understand where that's coming from. And, and we, the truth of the matter is, we won't know this until the very end to see what happens. I get that. And um, we both can't be right, I understand that. But I do believe that when you use the approach of historical, grammatical uh, interpreta interpretation, you come to the, what we call the dispensational view, where there is a future for the nation Israel in God's future plans. Right now, they're a nation in total rebellion. Right now, they're under the curse of God as a nation. Jews are certainly coming to Christ individually, but as a nation, there's a curse going on there. But one day, they will see their Messiah whom they pierce, Zechariah 12 through 14 says, and they will fall down and weep over what they did to their Messiah. I do believe that repentance is in the future for the nation. Zechariah 12 through 14, Romans chapter 11, the, the book of Daniel, I believe, lays all of this out. And so basically, our eschatology says that God is not finished with Israel. And those of the covenantal persuasion would say, Rod, these verses you just taught us today are proof, proof that the church has replaced Israel because Peter is taking these verses and applying them to the church. And I simply would say, well, I agree that we share a lot of the same things. And I agree that we are now the instrument that God is using in the world to declare the excellencies of God in the gospel and being ambassadors for God. But it does not mean that we believe that all the blessings that were promised to Israel are not going to be fulfilled one day. If you read the Old Testament, you see blessing and cursing, blessing and cursing to the nation Israel. Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks. They got all the cursings, no doubt about it. Why would he not give them the blessings that he promised them in a kingdom one day? And I just, so for, so for that end, I believe there is a temporary hardening of the nation Israel. But I do believe at some point they will repent.
And let me read to you from a um, from McDonald's uh, Believer's Bible Commentary. It's a, a commentary I have on my Bible program on, online, but listen to this. He says it well. No one should conclude from this passage in Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. No one should conclude from this passage in Peter that because the church is now God's people, the church is now God's people, that he is through with the na- Israel as a nation. Neither should one assume that the church is the Israel of God or that the promises made to Israel now apply to the church. Israel and the church are distinct entities, and an understanding of these distinctions is an important key to interpreting the prophetic word. Israel was God's chosen earthly people from calling Abraham to the, call, to the coming of Messiah. You get that? To the coming of Messiah. From the calling of Abraham to the coming of Messiah, he was the chosen earthly people. They were the chosen earthly people. The nation's fading and faithlessness reached its climax when Christ was nailed to the cross. Because of their sin, God temporarily set aside Israel as his chosen people, shelved them, shelved them. And in the present age, God has a new people, the church. The church age forms a parenthesis in God's dealing with Israel. For example, you go all the way through the Old Testament, it's Israel, Israel, up to the death of Christ, it's Israel. And then you have this parenthesis, God's no longer dealing with Israel. I've gone to another people, Jesus says, the church. That's a parenthesis. One day the church will be caught up and taken away, and then we believe God will then continue his work with Israel. I believe that is the grid to look at Scripture through. If you hold to a different view, no problem, no problem. This is secondary. It won't save you or condemn you one way or the other. But I just want you to understand how those of you that know we hold to this view and how I would look at verses like this today and how that could possibly fit into our theology. There is a time when they will repent and place their faith. I mean... Covenant theology has other things that we don't hold to. We don't practice the baptism of infants. Um, We believe in believer's baptism. And there's probably some other issues as well. But the point is, on the gospel, we agree. On Reformed theology, on, on the doctrines of grace, we agree. And those are the things that matter most to us. Look back, if we will, in just a few minutes here that remain. He says the... We have, we have, we're here now, we're the church, and we're to be ambassadors. In verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why? If you, here's your job description, Christian, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, so we have this great identity, and this is our responsibility. And this is our job description, that we are to be billboards. Interesting word. We are to, um, the word um, is to publicize. Proclaim is to publicize. It's like you're to be a, walk, a commercial. It's like you're to be a walking billboard about the excellencies of God. Uh, question is, are we good advertisement? Are we a good advertisement? That's the question. Are we a good advertisement? We are to advertise his excellencies, his attributes, his character, his wisdom, his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his saving power who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He saved me, he can save anybody. He, he brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. 
He rescued us from the domain of darkness. That is what we are to proclaim. We are to be ambassadors for God. Israel forfeited that. The church has taken that on. One day we'll be gone and Israel will be doing it all again in the kingdom. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can be among those who have believed and are obedient to the truth, that we are those who were rescued out of the darkness and brought into your marvelous light. We thank you, God, that we are your chosen ones, that we are a holy nation, that we are royal priests and a royal priesthood. We thank you for this identity, God, that you have given to us in Christ. And because of his, our union with him, Father, we will one day reign with him. Our, our salvation is secure. Our hope is secure because of Jesus. And God, may we be faithful ambassadors. May we be faithful proclaimers, faithful commercials, faithful publicists for the Lord Jesus Christ as we present him to the world. We love you and thank you for all that you've done in our lives, done in our lives, and making all of these things true about us. In Jesus' name, amen.